You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who is your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can find all the back episodes of You Can't Be Neutral at youcan'tbeneutral.com. You'll also find a link there to send me a message and some links there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. You can also follow You Can't Be Neutral on Twitter at YCB neutral. The U.S., for about as long as it has been a nation, has been meddling in and interfering in the politics, the elections, the uh, social and economic structures of other countries around the world, um, aggressively so in the countries in South America and Central America. So there's a long history of the U.S. imposing its will on the country of Nicaragua. Things turned around a bit in Nicaragua in 1980 when the Sandinistas finally overthrew the dictator Somoza and started on a course of a freer, a more egalitarian, and an improved nation for much of the public in Nicaragua. This is intolerable to the U.S. Immediately, the U.S. took remnants of Somoza's death squads and reconstituted them, supported them, funded them as the Contras to consistently attack, you know, war, the new Sandinista governing body. This continues to today, the, not, the, not the hot war with the Contras, uh, that fizzled out and was defeated, but the economic hot war, trying to manipulate, trying to cajole with, with various amounts of success, sometimes successfully, sometimes not, um, continues to today as it does all over Central and South America. This episode is going to focus on the most recent uh, goings-on in Nicaragua, the efforts by the United States to manipulate the electorate and the elections in Nicaragua that have just passed. Um, There's a variety of pieces here, some of which were written prior to the elections in Nicaragua on November 7, and a couple of which were written after. First up is a piece written by Stephen Sefton. This is published at TelesurEnglish.net. As Nicaragua's presidential and legislative elections next November 7 draw nearer, so the attacks demonizing the country's Sandinista FSLN government, led by President Daniel Ortega, become progressively more intense. Lately, 
Western propaganda outlets have focused on the recent arrests of various figures from Nicaragua's political opposition, claiming that they are arbitrary detentions aimed at preventing any challenge to Daniel Ortega's presidential candidacy. A recent Guardian interview with highly regarded novelist Sergio Ramirez, a long-standing fierce critic of President Ortega and Vice President Rosario Murillo, his former comrades, offers a litany of the falsehoods and distortions currently being deployed to discredit their government. Ramirez was Daniel Ortega's vice president from 1985 to 1990. In 1994, after failing to oust Daniel Ortega from the FSLN leadership, he and other ex-Sandinistas formed a social democrat party called the Sandinista Renewal Movement, MRS. After a desperately poor electoral showing in 1996, Ramirez ostensibly retired from politics. But he remained a very high-profile, virulent political critic of President Ortega and has been extremely active and influential, mobilizing international opinion in Latin America, North America, and Europe against Nicaragua's Sandinista government. In effect, Ramirez leverages his international influence to compensate for the comprehensive lack of support inside Nicaragua for the political opposition he represents. Inside Nicaragua, recent well-respected opinion polls have consistently indicated well over 60% of electoral support for President Ortega and a little over 20% support for Nicaragua's opposition parties. Like so much else contradicting the continuing attacks on Nicaragua's Sandinista government, that fact is systematically omitted from practically all current reporting on the country. In fact, the positive revolution changes President Ortega's administration has brought about in Nicaragua completely contradict the image of the country depicted by Sergio Ramirez and the rest of Nicaragua's political opposition. Their attacks all start from the standard propaganda premise that President Ortega is a corrupt, brutal dictator. However, his administration's wide-ranging achievements on behalf of all Nicaragua's people are recognized by numerous relevant international bodies from institutions like the World Bank and the Central American Bank for Economic Integration to the UN Food and Agriculture Organization and the World Health Organization. Under President Ortega, Nicaragua has implemented the most advanced, devolved government for indigenous and Afro-descendant peoples in the hemisphere and is the leading country in the Americas in terms of women's representation in public life. Nicaragua has the most extensive and best equipped public health system in Central America. The country is practically self-sufficient in food production thanks to a radical democratization of its agriculture, livestock, and fisheries production. It has the best highway system in Central America. Nicaragua's innovative education system, especially its outreach programs to rural areas, and its use of audiovisual media is very highly regarded in Latin America. International financial institutions regard the country as among the most efficient users of their loans for development programs. Nicaragua's diversification towards renewable energy is among the most advanced in the region. Likewise, the country is the safest, most secure in Central America. Even so, these tremendous achievements rarely, if ever, figure in the narrative deployed by Western corporate and alternative media because they contradict the big lie that Daniel Ortega 
is a corrupt, brutal dictator. The Guardian interview with Sergio Ramirez promotes that big lie shamelessly, with complete disregard for the truth. Omitting the Sandinista government's unquestionable achievements, the interview frames the country's reality within a distorted misrepresentation of the crisis in 2018, during which Sergio Ramirez's political allies combined with big business and the Catholic Church to attempt a violent overthrow of Nicaragua's government. They failed, but thanks to the systemic false witness of the Western human rights industry, the extreme violence of Nicaragua's political opposition in that regime change crisis has been buried. As for the interview with Ramirez, among the bland puffery for his latest novel, he and his interviewer also purvey the current set of opposition falsehoods, namely, President Ortega is a despot arbitrarily persecuting the political opposition to exclude their participation in November's elections. The 2018 regime change crisis cons consisted of peaceful protests brutally repressed by the authorities who killed more than 400 young people. Vice President Murillo is a deranged religious maniac. Nicaragua has over 140 political prisoners. The electoral process is a farce and eight presidential candidates are imprisoned. The fundamental background explaining this set of propaganda falsehoods is that the U.S. government has declared Nicaragua to be a serious threat to the national security of the United States. The U.S. authorities have implemented a series of measures attacking Nicaragua's economy. Last year, USAID produced a document called Responsive Assistance in Nicaragua, which explicitly discusses ways of bringing about regime change in Nicaragua using local nonprofits. In response, the Nicaraguan authorities have acted based on the country's criminal code, along with other national legislation, as well as its obligations under international treaties, to investigate the opposition's criminal collusion in U.S. aggression against the country's people and government. Opposition propaganda to the contrary, all the people arrested are being held for offenses detailed in the country's criminal code. No one in Nicaragua is imprisoned merely for their political beliefs. The Office of the Public Prosecutor in Nicaragua is an institution independent of the government, which in this case has found that many figures among the country's extra-parliamentary political opposition have not only colluded with, invited, and encouraged U.S. and European Union aggression against Nicaragua and its citizens, but also accepted tens of millions of dollars from the U.S. government. Over many years, they received that money formally, via their nonprofit organizations, but abuse their nonprofit status, using the money corruptly so as to fund activities of the country's political opposition aimed at facilitating U.S. government-instigated destabilization. The public prosecutor found that Sergio Ramirez's nonprofit foundation was among the recipients of that money, so a court order was sought and obtained for his arrest. No presidential candidates figure among the people under arrest. None of the people alluded to, for example, Cristiana Chamorro, Felix Maradiaga, Medardo Mariana, Arturo Cruz, Juan Sebastian Chamorro, are even members of a political party in Nicaragua. Only Sergio Ramirez can explain why he describes people who are not even members of a political party as bona fide presidential candidates. As things stand, six opposition political parties, PLC, PLI, APRE, 
Camino Cristiano, ALN, and Yatama will participate in November's elections along with the ruling FSLN party. So it is equally absurd to suggest that the electorate has no choice for whom to vote. On July 24 and 25, over 60% of Nicaragua's electorate turned out to verify their voter details in their respective voting centers prior to the actual vote in November. Clearly, Nicaragua's voters disagree with Sergio Ramirez that the elections are a farce. Ramirez and his Guardian editors continue to retail the lie that the 2018 protests were peaceful. In fact, 400 police officers suffered gunshot wounds and 22 were killed by the opposition peaceful protesters, who also burnt down schools, attacked health centers and radio stations, and took numerous hostages at the roadblocks they set up under control of armed thugs. The Guardian reports, quote, 400 young people being killed when in fact just 10 or 12 students died, half of them Sandinista supporters killed by opposition activists. The true overall figure of people who died during the crisis is around 260, with over 60 being Sandinista supporters, and the great majority passers-by caught up in the opposition-provoked violence. And I remember reading a separate study of the deaths in that violence. In that study, after those authors painstakingly traced back all of the deaths that they could, determined that about half of them were caused by the opposition protesters, and half by the government supporters. Among the most odious of the false claims made by Ramirez and The Guardian is the smearing of Vice President Rosario Murillo, which points to the deep-rooted misogyny of both Ramirez and The Guardian's editors. Ramirez cannot accept that a supremely talented woman wiped the floor with him and his opposition accomplices politically consigning him and his MRS movement to electoral irrelevance. Neither he nor his colleagues of the now-defunct MRS will ever forgive Rosario Murillo for that. Murillo was a key strategist in rebuilding the FSLN as a political party through the 1990s and up until the party's successful 2006 election campaign. From 2007 to date, Daniel Ortega and Rosario Murillo have put together and managed the ministerial and legislative team that designed and carried out policies which, up until the U.S. instigated crisis of 2018, gave Nicaragua the most successful development policies in Central America and among the most successful in all of Latin America and the Caribbean. Rosario Murillo is a revolutionary anti-imperialist readily comp comparable in the regional context to other outstanding women political figures in the region, from Delcy Rodriguez to Cristina Fernandez or Dilma Rousseff. Ramirez and The Guardian cannot deny Murillo's tremendous achievements and talent, so they rubbish her and smear her as a deranged kind of, quote, mad woman in the attic, revealing their own patriarchal instincts. The interview with Ramirez has the headline, quote, a feeling of deja vu, which could hardly be more appropriate. Yet again, a member of Nicaragua's right-wing elite has allied with the country's historical aggressor, the United States, colluding in U.S. aggression to attack not just his own country's legitimate government, but also ordinary Nicaraguan citizens. In this case, the treason of Sergio Ramirez comes dressed up as brave and principled defiance by a minor high-culture icon. 
However, people in the U.S. might well compare such treason with that of Ezra Pound, a much more influential cultural figure than Ramirez, who broadcast from Italy against the Allies during World War II. The U.S. authorities threw him in a cage, and he only escaped a death sentence by pleading insanity. Despite effectively collaborating with the U.S. government aggression against his country, Ramirez attracts sympathy among susceptible U.S. liberals and European Social Democrats by feigning to be progressive while in practice supporting Nicaragua's traditional oligarchy, big business, and the local Catholic Church hierarchy. In Nicaragua, people draw the contrast between Ramirez's base treachery and the illustrious example of Ruben Dario also an incomparably more influential figure culturally than Ramirez. Dario served his country faithfully as a diplomat and was resolutely clear-eyed about the menace of U.S. imperialism in his day. As well as betraying his country, Ramirez has betrayed the cultural, spiritual, and political legacy of Nicaragua's national hero, Ruben Dario and Augusto C. Sandino. In any case, for most people in Nicaragua, the opinion of a politically marginal figure like Ramirez is a matter of complete indifference. Next up is a piece published at thegrayzone.com. This is written by Ben Norton, and this details the some of the contents of the document that that previous article mentioned, the document produced by USAID, which is basically a, a request for a contract to manage PR and other activities in Nicaragua. And this is back from August 4, 2020, when this was uh, brought to light. A newly released document exposes a U.S. government operation to overthrow the democratically elected socialist government in Nicaragua. The plot is administered by the United States Agency for International Development, USAID, a regime change vehicle that uses the pretense of, quote, humanitarian aid to advance Washington's aggressive foreign policy interests. The document details the creation of a new task order called Responsive Assistance in Nicaragua, or RAIN, and its plan for, quote, Nicaragua's transition to democracy, a euphemism for removing the leftist Sandinista Front for National Liberation, known commonly by the Spanish acronym, acronym FSLN, from power. In the pages, the U.S. government agency uses hardline neoconservative rhetoric, ref referring to Nicaragua's elected government as the Ortega regime, and making it clear that Washington wants to install a neoliberal administration that will privatize the economy impose neoliberal reforms, and purge all institutions of any trace of the leftist Sandinista movement. The USAID regime change scheme states openly that one of its top mission goals is for Nicaragua to, quote, transition to a rules-based market economy based on the protection of private property rights. The document concludes by calling for the future U.S.-installed regime in Nicaragua to, quote, rebuild institutions and, quote, re-establish the military and police, to dismantle parallel institutions that support the Sandinista Front, and to persecute FSLN leaders through transitional justice measures, in other words, a thorough purge of the Sandinista movement to prevent it from ever returning to power. 
In case it was not explicit enough that Washington's goal was regime change, the 14-page USAID document employed the word, word transition 102 times, including nine times on the first page alone. USAID declared its intention to assist in what could be a, quote, orderly transition or a, quote, sudden transition without elections, which is clear code for a coup. At the same time, it acknowledged that Nicaragua's right-wing opposition is divided and has little chance of winning the upcoming 2021 national election. Ever since the Sandinista Front returned to power in Nicaragua through democratic elections in 2006, Washington has been hell-bent on trying to topple it. In 2018, the Donald Trump administration supported a violent coup attempt in Nicaragua in which far-right gangs took over neighborhoods and paralyzed the country with bloody barricades known as tranks. The U.S.-backed insurgents unleashed a reign of terror, killing and injuring hundreds of Sandinista activists and state security forces, marking the homes of leftist activists, ransacking and burning some down, and torturing and threatening supporters of the elected government. When the 2018 putsch attempt failed, the U.S. government resorted to a raft of aggressive tactics to bring down Nicaragua's leadership. In the past two years, the Trump administration has imposed several rounds of suffocating sanctions on the small Central American nation, often with bipartisan support in Congress. Not a word of opposition from the Democratic Party and cheers from the billionaire-funded human rights industry. The U.S. Agency for International Development was instrumental in the Donald Trump administration's violent U.S. coup attempts against Venezuela's elected government in 2019, working directly with the Department of Defense. USAID has poured hundreds of millions of dollars funding the U.S. regime change efforts against the leftist Chavista government and has bankrolled the Trump-backed coup regime of Juan Guaido. USAID has always functioned as a CIA cutout and soft power arm for Washington, but under the Trump administration, it has kicked its coup efforts in Latin America into hyperdrive. In April 2020, USAID was taken over by de facto director John Barsa, a hardline Republican businessman, Trump ally, and son of anti-communist Cuban immigrants. In coordination with Secretary of State and former CIA director Mike Pompeo, Barca has turned USAID into a blunt weapon of regime change, openly financing push efforts against the socialist governments of Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua. The Gray Zone contacted USAID to ask confirmation that the document detailing its plans for a political transition in Nicaragua was authentic. The agency did not respond. We were able, however, to gather evidence demonstrating the document's legitimacy for starters, metadata on the PDF file show that the original author was the Forms Division of the U.S. Government's General Services Administration, GSA, which oversees logistics for USAID and other agencies. Even more compellingly, the pages spelling out the regime change plot employ precisely the same language and phrases as a job listing that was posted in late July by another U.S. government-funded organization, Democracy International. In fact, the USAID document appears to be a more detailed job description for this post. Democracy International stated in its listing on LinkedIn that it was seeking a Nicaraguan national in the capital of Managua to work as a, quote, senior-level technical expert 
democracy, human rights, and governance to provide technical and programmatic support for USAID Nicaragua's Responsive Assistance in Nicaragua, RAIN, Task Order. Directly echoing the USAID document, the Democracy International job listing said that the purpose of the task order is, quote, to provide rapid, responsive, and relevant analytical and technical assistance that bridge USAID Nicaragua's efforts to create the conditions for and support a peaceful transition to democracy in Nicaragua. This is rather infuriating, a peaceful transition to democracy in Nicaragua. Nicaragua has had democratic elections ever since the mid-80s after the successful uh, coup against um, Somoza and the stabilization during the fight with the Contras. Uh, the Sandinista rulers there started having democratic elections. This employee would help develop a, quote, transition response plan, a regime change scheme. During the Cold War, coup coordinator jobs like this would have been covert positions arranged with the CIA. In the freewheeling 21st century, however, this dirty regime change work is carried out out in the open and advertised publicly on LinkedIn. In case it wasn't clear what the organization's relationship was to USAID, it stated clearly on the post, Quote, Democracy International, Inc., DI, provides technical assistance and analytical services and project implementation for democracy, human rights, governance, and conflict mitigation programs worldwide for the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, the U.S. State Department, and other development partners. The job listing explicitly noted that the employee would work with the U.S. government to provide, quote, technical advice and country knowledge to government of Nicaragua ministries, U.S. government, and other stakeholders. Clearly, Democracy International is searching for a local point person to help carry out Washington's regime change efforts on the ground. The USAID document spelled out in detail the specific destabilization strategy that this liaison would follow. The Gray Zone called the Democracy International office with a request for comment on the LinkedIn job listing, the RAIN program, and the USAID document. The Secretary would not let us speak with a specific member of the international team, simply saying, quote, We will inform the relevant people that we have received a call, and I can give them their name and number, and they will call you. The Secretary asked if the Gray Zone had a specific question to respond to. We said, quote, Local Nicaraguan media outlets have criticized USAID's RAIN program, which is described in the Democracy International job posting, and characterized it as what appears to be an attempt at orchestrating a coup in the country. Can you respond to that characterization, and do you think that is fair or unfair? The Democracy International secretary replied, Wow, that's so interesting. I will definitely let them know that you called. Democracy International never called back. USAID's Responsive Assistance in Nicaragua RAIN plan makes it clear that it is just a, quote, short-term bridge to bring about regime change in the country, adding, quote, it is USAID's intent to follow RAIN with longer-term programs, which will be determined as the crisis evolves. The regime change plot outlined in A Mission Goal 2 
in which, quote, Nicaragua provides basis for future economic growth and increased trade through transition to a rules-based market economy based on transparent and accountable regulatory institutions, fiscal and monetary stability, and respect for the rule of law and protection of private property rights. A supplementary mission objective emphasized USAID's desire for a new neoliberal regime in Nicaragua that, quote, works with the private sector to rebuild institutionality and an efficient and fair administrative bureaucracy. In other words, mass privatization. Among the supposed crimes committed by Nicaraguan regime, USA lists confiscation of properties. The USAID document outlined further U.S. priorities for Nicaragua following a successful regime change operation. USAID's Mission Goal 3 would be, quote, security reform and rebuilding institutions to reestablish independent and professional security forces. This is clearly a call for purging the police and military of Sandinista loyalists and bringing U.S. trainers to establish a neo-colonial-style security force, much like General Keith Dayton did in the occupied West Bank after Palestinian resistance was extinguished following the Second Intifada. The quote, new government must act quickly to dismantle parallel institutions, USAID adds. This is an indirect hint that Washington seeks to destroy the Sandinista Front, the Sandinista Youth, and other grassroots institutions that work with but are independent of the current socialist government. At its most severe, such a proposal could amount to an Augusto Pinochet-style purge of the left in Nicaragua. In a return, I will add to the Death Squad-style military that plagued Central America in the 70s and into the 80s in many countries, some of which, elements at least of which, are still effective and active now in certain countries. Additionally, it will need to implement transitional justice measures. The USAID document added, This language, which has also been used in the proxy war on Syria, suggests the new neoliberal Nicaraguan government would be compelled to prosecute Sandinista Front officials, echoing the strategy the U.S.-backed right-wing regimes in Bolivia and Ecuador have used to criminalize the left-wing parties that previously ruled those countries, hunt down former leftist leaders, and throw opposition officials in prison on dubious charges. Another important part of the RAIN job would include recruiting native coup coordinators to help carry out the regime change plot. USAID described this responsibility as follows, quote, identification of potential Nicaraguan partners for rapid impact grants under task order to promote transition-related activities. The initiative allotted $540,000 in grants to entice Nicaraguan opposition groups into assisting the regime change effort. In the second poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, where the minimum wage is between $200 and $300 per month, half a million dollars is no petty sum. These funds would complement the millions of dollars that USAID and the NED provide to right-wing Nicaraguan organizations every year. The USAID document insisted that, quote, Nicaragua's immediate future remains highly uncertain, yet it acknowledged that the right-wing opposition is divided and unpopular, admitting that its leadership has not coalesced around a party or candidate. 
Taking into account the weakness of the opposition heading into the 2021 national elections, the USAID plan outlines three scenarios for the overthrow of the socialist government in a transition to a U.S.-friendly neoliberal regime. The first is an orderly transition scenario, a far-fetched situation in which an unpopular U.S.-backed opposition group somehow manages to win the election. The second potential regime change scenario is described as a sudden, unanticipated transition in which one or more political crises, such as a snap or failed election, a presidential resignation, a major health crisis, a major natural disaster, or internal conflicts lead to sudden regime crisis and transition either to an interim government or a new government. This is the coup option, and USAID makes it clear that it would be more than happy with such a situation and warns its RAIN liaison to prepare for it. The third is a delayed transition scenario in which the Sandinista government remains in power. In this case, USAID says that RAIN would help it destabilize the government in other ways and lead to future regime change. But USAID didn't want readers to get the wrong impression. It stressed in the document that its coup would be, quote, gender-sensitive in compliance and based on gender-informed analytical work. Although the women who make up the bulk of the Sandinista base would have been to have to be excluded from Washington's woke political, quote, transition. The USAID document balances its liberal language on gender with neoconservative rhetoric claiming, quote, malign foreign influences, principally Cuba, Venezuela, and Russia, will continue to attempt to strengthen the corrupt autocratic Ortega regime. The existence of the USAID regime change document was first reported on July 1 on the popular Nicaraguan radio and video show Sin Fronteras hosted by William Grigsby Vado. Grigsby, a prominent leftist media personality with a large following at the base of the Sandinista Front, condemned the U.S. plot. Quote, It is nauseating, the document. Bearing to read it is difficult, he said in outrage. You have to have a strong liver to bear it. It pained me a lot. What right does the U.S. government have to contract a firm to subvert public order in any country? Grigsby fumed. It is a shameless intervention. Before they did it with the military, in this case they are doing it by subverting public order and funding political opposition activities. That is unacceptable. What if Nicaragua did this in the United States? If, for example, Daniel Ortega said, hey, we're going to help the protesters in Portland, he added, but they reserved to themselves the right to act against the democratic institutionality of a country. Grigsby concluded by condemning Yankee imperialism and slamming Nicaraguan opposition figures who are participating in this regime change scheme. You all can do one of two things, he thundered at the opposition. Follow the rules of democracy, accept your defeat, and participate in the political game. Or you can simply remain as treasonists, hitmen, and traitors. The USAID document shows Washington pushing the latter option in driving the country into a deepened conflict. Here's a piece written by John Perry, published at FAIR.org. Quote, record numbers of migrants are coming into the United States from Nicaragua, according to Newsweek, which blames the increase on, quote, arbitrary arrests and human rights abuses by the Nicaraguan government. 
Former Sandinista leader Sergio Ramirez, writing for El Salvador's El Faro, claims that repression by President Daniel Ortega's Sandinista government is causing a, quote, dramatic growth in migration by Nicaraguans. Reuters agrees, describing the government crackdown as stirring a, quote, fast-growing exodus from the country. The Wall Street Journal has also identified the, quote, crackdown, quoting a 19-year-old Nicaraguan who hopes to get asylum in the United States as claiming that, quote, in Nicaragua, our fate is prison or death. Migration from Nicaragua has increased from a few hundred per month to a peak of 13,456 in July, since falling sharply. But Nicaraguans are still only 3% of the total apprehensions in the year so far, which number 1.5 million. These news outlets are ignoring the fact that while numbers of Nicaraguan migrants have risen, so have those from almost everywhere else. Nearly five times as many migrants are arriving at the southwestern border than was the case over the same period last year. The bulk of migrant apprehensions are still from Mexico and the Northern Triangle of Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. Ramirez, who was Ortega's vice president from 1985 to 1990, says the triangle should now be a rectangle, including Nicaragua, but his case for that is based on politics, not numbers. Like the Wall Street Journal, several outlets quoted Nicaraguans who maintain they are victims of repression. Reuters, for example, spoke to a Nicaraguan opposition activist, Jesus Adolfo Tefel, who says he left because he feared arrest. In El Faro, Ramirez cited the tragic case of Oscar Javier Fuentes, recently murdered in Mexico, who apparently fled Nicaragua because his brother died in the violent coup attempt in 2018, and he feared the same. In June of that year, his brother William Fuentes, an opposition supporter, was killed when manning an anti-government roadblock at La Trinidad near Esteli, which was notorious for violent incidents. On May 30, those controlling the roadblock shot at a caravan of vehicles carrying Sandinista supporters, killing two and injuring 21 others. None of the reports state that those who were arrested for crimes they committed in 2018 were given amnesty in June 2019, when some 400 people guilty of murder, torture, and other atrocities were released from prison on condition that they cut their links with groups organizing violence, and others who had evaded arrest were pardoned on the same basis. Only those who continue to be involved in violent groups are vulnerable to arrest under the terms of the amnesty. U.S. corporate media are eager to bolster their oft-repeated narrative that Nicaragua is an oppressive dictatorship. Reuters quoted a State Department official, quote, What we are seeing in Nicaragua is an escalating climate of repression, fear, and hopelessness, further vilifying the country in the run-up to its presidential election on November 7. Yet the only recent arrests in Nicaragua have been of prominent opposition representatives accused of specific violations of laws relating, for example, to the illegal use of money from nonprofit organizations and the receipt of undeclared foreign government funding, activities that would be crimes under U.S. law. Writing for the Quixote Center, Tom Ricker points out that attributing increased Nicaraguan migration to a political crackdown is, quote, is not really true, or at least is far from the whole story. Rather than fear of arrest prior to November's elections, in practice there is much greater fear of the potential effect of intensified U.S. sanctions if current legislation, the Renaissance Act, were to be approved. 
Talking to people in the city of Messiah, I found no one interested in making the hazardous journey to the U.S., but colleagues speaking to people in three different rural areas found significant interest in migration for economic reasons, including from Sandinista supporters worried about post-election sanctions, which could hit an economy which is only just recovering. In Central America, climate change is having an increasing effect on rural economies. The media are beginning to acknowledge this is a cause of migration in the case of neighboring Guatemala, which has produced a fourfold increase in U.S.-bound migrants this year. Politico, for example, says, quote, It's not a border crisis, it is a climate crisis, while the Associated Press also blames Guatemalan migration on climate disasters. None of the media examine this as a reason for Nicaraguan migration, even though last November's two unprecedented hurricanes added to the economic damage done by droughts, the pandemic, and the violent coup attempt in 2018. Increased migration is due not only to Central America's problems, but to the positive draw of the recovering economy in the U.S., while Latin America is still suffering the pandemic's effects. In Nicaragua, activities by coyotes, smugglers who charge migrants large sums to assist their passage north, have increased significantly, according to reports I received with offers of supposed guaranteed employment for those who make it. There is evidence that Nicaraguans, like Cubans and Venezuelans, are treated more favorably by border officials. More than half of migrants encountered by border officials are currently expelled from the U.S. on public health grounds, known as Title 42. This applies particularly to Mexicans, of whom 86% are immediately returned to Mexico. But officials give more sympathetic treatment to citizens from countries that are at odds with the U.S. government, admitting them temporarily under Title VIII, which gives them a chance to apply for asylum. Of Nicaraguans encountered, 93% are admitted on this basis. For Cubans, the proportion is 71%, and for Venezuelans, 97%. Such treatment is not extended to migrants from the Northern Triangle countries, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, even though they often have very strong grounds for seeking asylum for a range of reasons. Reuters sees no end to the crisis, describing, quote, an exodus shaping up to be among the biggest from Nicaragua since the 1980s Civil War. This threatens not just the U.S., but neighboring countries, too. Of these, Costa Rica is picked out because it has received more Nicaraguan asylum claims than any other country. Now, Reuters says claims are likely to overwhelm Costa Rica's asylum system. The New York Times suggests that 10,000 Nicaraguans headed south in June and July and that Costa Rica has become, quote, a refuge for Nicaraguans fleeing dictatorship. Exaggerating even further, it said on October 27 that over 500,000 Nicaraguans have settled in neighboring Costa Rica, many arriving after a round of repression that started in 2018. As I pointed out for COHA, this manufactured refugee crisis glosses over the reality of the close economic ties between the two countries. Costa Rica has for decades had a symbiotic relationship with Nicaragua, depending on it for labor for its tourism, farming, and other industries. While Nicaraguans benefit from working in an economy where income per capita is five times that of Nicaragua. But this has changed with the near collapse of tourism in both countries but especially in Costa Rica, and the ravages of COVID-19, which have hit Costa Rica's economy and that of its neighbor Panama worse than Nicaragua.
So rather than taking refuge there, Nicaraguans are returning home. In a recent 12-month period, September 2020 to August 2021, there were 177,225 cross-border movements by Nicaraguans into and out of Costa Rica, far fewer than in a typical year when there are around 800,000. And in this 12-month period, slightly more Nicaraguans left Costa Rica, 89,928, then entered it, 87,927. Last year, Costa Rica's Vice President Epsi Campbell went so far as to plead with Nicaraguans not to leave her country. Of course, there are unrecorded border crossings too, but it is likely that many of these also involve people heading north rather than south. Of the Nicaraguans in Costa Rica at any one time, the country's official migration statistics show that only a very small proportion apply for asylum. A Nicaraguan's chance of having an asylum application approved is not high, around half get turned down, and waiting times are extremely long. Nicaraguans living regularly in Costa Rica saw the 2018 crisis as an unprecedented opportunity to regularize their status by seeking asylum. At the time, Costa Rica's president admitted that more than 80% of asylum requests came from people who had been living in the country without documents before 2018. While it is undeniable that more Nicaraguans have sought asylum elsewhere since 2018, compared with very low numbers prior to the country's crisis, the numbers need to be put into perspective. The myth that Nicaragua is a major source of migrants heading for the Mexico-U.S. border, and that this is primarily due to repression at home, is a very dangerous one for at least two reasons. First, it diverts attention from the much more significant drivers of migration from the countries to its north, where in addition to natural disasters, people are fleeing severe problems of increased poverty, violence, repressive government, often poor public services, and systemic corruption. Pretending such problems are worse in Nicaragua than in the Northern Triangle countries is not only absurd, but produces a perverse political focus on Nicaragua that allows the U.S. to evade responsibility for the conditions that have developed in those three countries, at least in part as a consequence of its policy of supporting corrupt neoliberal governments. Second, the media's exaggeration of the scale of Nicaraguan migration and its message that repression is a main driver for it helps justify the U.S. government's hostility towards the Sandinista government, enabling it to claim that sanctions and other forms of political pressure will help keep migration down. Yet the reverse is true. Sanctions are already hitting Nicaragua's poor via restrictions on international aid and delays in World Bank and other funding programs. If sanctions are intensified after the election, for example, via a trade embargo, they could put greater pressure on Nicaragua's economy, especially in rural areas. The media will doubtless continue to criticize the government for its handling of migration at the southern border, but at the same time, they are helping to justify the U.S. government's misjudged policies. Much larger numbers of Nicaraguans might start to head north, adding to the encampments on the banks of the Rio Grande. Next piece here is from Netfa Freeman, and this is published at blackagendareport.com. Black Agenda Report has been one of the best uh, places to get some more balanced or less biased opinion and um, reporting on what's going on in Nicaragua. 
While the U.S. government haggles over the cost of providing basic human rights to its citizens, it is also targeting countries like Nicaragua that struggle to guarantee these rights to all of its citizens, especially indigenous and black populations. On November 7th, the people of Nicaragua will go to the polls to reaffirm the commitment to their revolutionary democratic project, a project that began in 1979 when the Sandinista National Liberation Front, FSLN, defeated a vicious neo-colonial gangster regime of Anastasio Somoza that was put in power by the United States. Under the leadership of the FSLN, the people of Nicaragua were able to finally control their own history and destiny. However, U.S. imperialism was not going to respect the wishes of the people. Under the neo-fascist President Ronald Reagan, the U.S. launched a brutal war of aggression, part of the Reagan administration's counter-revolutionary strategy to reverse gains of revolutionary movements. The strategy not only targeted the people of Nicaragua, but also the New Jewel movement in Grenada, the Iranian Revolution, both of which also took place in 1979 and the victory of ZANU-PF in Zimbabwe in 1980. It is important to point out that organizations that were part of the radical anti-imperialist black liberation movement provided critical logistical, political, and moral support to all of these efforts throughout the 70s. For black revolutionaries committed to people-centered human rights, PCHRs, that centered decolonial self-determination, social justice, and socialism. Support for these struggles was not an issue of solidarity, but of a common struggle against a common enemy. Nicaragua has a special place for the U.S. black community for a number of reasons. The central one is that when the Reagan administration was restricted from using government resources to fund the counter-revolutionary war it initiated against Nicaragua, that administration organized a drug smuggling scheme that flooded our communities with cheap rock cocaine from Colombia. This was the period that introduced crack cocaine into black communities. Journalist Gary Webb, author of the groundbreaking book, Dark Alliances, exposed how the CIA helped finance its covert war against Nicaragua's Sandinista government through sales of the powerfully concentrated cut-rate crack cocaine to South Central LA drug dealer Ricky Ross. In orchestrating the Contra War against Nicaragua, the U.S. also facilitated the explosion of a crack cocaine into black communities across the U.S., rendering those communities vulnerable to its domestic war on drugs and mass incarceration. To hijack Nicaragua's 1990 election, the U.S. made it clear to the Nicaraguan people that the U.S. would continue funding and supporting the bloody war against them if they re-elected the Sandinistas. The racist U.S.-backed government of Violeta Chamorro was elected under duress, and from 1990 to 2006, the country endured what Nicaraguans referred to as the period of neoliberalism. However, the FSLN returned in 2006 through the ballot box. Its remarkable advances, serving the most marginalized communities, is what now enrages the U.S. oligarchy compelling it to intensify its efforts to destabilize and recolonize the country. In 2018, the U.S. employed its tried-and-true method of co-opting delinquent elements to stir up a violent campaign of terror that was dubbed by the U.S. and its media as a popular uprising against a tyrannical government. The level of fatalities, human injury, and destruction was atrocious. 
While the U.S. government haggles over the cost of providing basic human rights to its citizens, it is also targeting countries like Nicaragua that struggle in earnest to guarantee these rights to all of its citizens. In addition to establishing and improving programs for universal education and health care that includes the construction of several new hospitals across the country at a rapid pace under the leadership of the Sandinistas, Nicaragua has managed to achieve over 80% food sovereignty. Within four years of returning to power, the Sandinista administration granted Nicaraguans indigenous and Afro-descendant peoples title to 15 territories covering more than 2 million hectares, over 37,000 square kilometers of land, in favor of the Mosquito, Mayanga, Rama, Ulwa, Creole, and Garifuna peoples, a territory larger than El Salvador and Belize combined. The Autonomy Statute, Law Number 28, recognizes the distinct historical experience of the Caribbean coast peoples, their control of land and institutions, and the logic of communal life in the northern and southern regions of the Caribbean coast. By law, the people exercise the right to govern their territory according to their own customs and rules as long as they are not incompatible with the sovereign rights of the Republic of Nicaragua as a whole and the national state is bound to protect the autonomous regions from external threats. The country enjoys a parliament that is a majority women, and Law 648, the Law of Equal Rights and Opportunities, aims to promote gender equality to ensure the full development and advancement of Nicaraguan women in all spheres of life. It is an obscene contradiction for the U.S. to spend vital taxpayer funds not to provide for its own citizens, but to subvert a country that offers more human rights protections to its people than the U.S. Internalizing lessons from their hard-won sacrifices, the Nicaraguan people are determined to continue the revolutionary project. Since 72% of the people supported the Sandinista leadership in 2016, their experiences have only fortified their resolve to continue on and are predicted to bear out in this current election. The Black Alliance for Peace, BAP, is committed to building an America's-wide movement that links Haiti, Cuba, Venezuela, Colombia, and Brazil in an anti-imperialist front. BAP is sending a delegation to Nicaragua as an election accompaniment to deepen our relationships, in particular with the Africans on the Caribbean coast. The democratic fascism of the U.S. oligarchy is both flagrant and insidious knowing no geographic boundaries. We need to support self-determination in Nicaragua and to embrace and cooperate with our people in the region. We need to work to destroy U.S. imperialism. And here's another piece by Ben Norton. This one from November 2. So about a week. This is a little bit less than a week from the elections that were held on November 7 in Nicaragua. Meet the Nicaraguans Facebook falsely branded bots and censored days before elections. Just days before Nicaragua's November 7 elections, top social media platforms censored top Nicaraguan news outlets and hundreds of journalists and activists who support their country's leftist Sandinista government. The politically motivated campaign of Silicon Valley censorship amounted to a massive purge of Sandinista supporters one week before the vote. 
It followed U.S. government attacks on the integrity of Nicaragua's elections and Washington's insistence that it will refuse to recognize the results. The United States sponsored a sadistically violent coup attempt in Nicaragua in 2018, which resulted in hundreds of deaths in a desperate effort to overthrow the democratically elected government of President Daniel Ortega. Since the putsch failed, both the Donald Trump and Joe Biden administrations have imposed several rounds of devastating sanctions on Nicaragua. The U.S. Congress plans to levy new heavy-handed sanctions against Nicaragua following the November 7 elections. Silicon Valley's crackdown on pro-Sandinista journalists and activists was part and parcel of the U.S. government's political assault on Nicaragua. Facebook and Instagram, both of which are owned by the newly rebranded big tech giant Meta, suspended 1,300 Nicaraguan-based accounts run by pro-Sandinista media outlets, journalists, and activists in a large-scale crackdown on October 31. Days before, Twitter did the same, purging many prominent pro-Sandinista journalists and influencers. On November 1, Sandinista activists whose accounts were suspended by Facebook and Instagram responded by posting videos on Twitter showing the world that they are indeed real people. But Twitter suspended their accounts as well, seeking to erase all evidence demonstrating that these Nicaraguans are not government bots or part of a coordinated, inauthentic operation. Twitter's follow-up censorship was effectively a double-tap strike on the freedom of speech of Nicaraguans, whose apparent misdeed is expressing political views that challenge Washington's objectives. The thousands of accounts censored by Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter collectively had hundreds of thousands of followers and represented some of the biggest and most influential media outlets and organizations in Nicaragua, a relatively small country of 6.5 million people. U.S. big tech companies suspending all of these accounts mere days before elections could have a significant tangible impact on Nicaragua's electoral results. The purges exclusively targeted supporters of the socialist anti-imperialist Sandinista Front Party. Zero right-wing opposition supporters in Nicaragua were impacted. Facebook published a report on November 1 claiming the Sandinistas it censored were part of a, quote, troll farm run by the government of Nicaragua and the Sandinista National Liberation Front Party that had engaged in, quote, coordinated, inauthentic behavior. This is demonstrably false. In reality, what Facebook Instagram did is purge most high-profile Sandinista supporters on the platforms, then try to justify it by claiming that average Sandinista activists are actually government-run bots. Facebook implicitly admitted this fact by conceding in the report that there were, quote, authentic accounts purged in the massive social media crackdown, but Facebook refused to differentiate between the authentic accounts and the alleged inauthentic accounts, naming none and instead lumping them all together in order to justify erasing their digital existence. Unlike Facebook's investigators, this reporter, Ben Norton, is based in Nicaragua and personally knows dozens of the Nicaraguans whose accounts were censored and can confirm that they are indeed real people organically expressing their authentic opinions, not trolls, bots, or fake accounts. I interviewed more than two dozen Sandinista activists whose personal accounts were suspended and published videos of some of them below to prove that Facebook's claims are categorically false. 
The Facebook report falsely depicting average Sandinista activists as government trolls was co-authored by Ben Nimmo, the leader of Meta's threat intelligence team. The Gray Zone has exposed Nimmo as a former press officer for the U.S.-led NATO military alliance and a paid consultant to an actual covert troll farm, the Integrity Initiative, which was established in secret by British military officers to run anti-Russian influence operations through Western media. Nimmo has served as head of investigations at Graphica, another information warfare initiative that was set up with funding from the U.S. Defense Department's Minerva Institute and operates with support from the Pentagon's Top Secret Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA. Nimmo, who is also a senior fellow at the Western government-funded Atlantic Council, meddled in Britain's 2020 election by smearing leftist Labour Party leader Jeremy Corbyn as a vessel for a supposed Russian active measures operation. The latest Nimmo-engineered pseudo-scandal highlights Facebook's role as an imperial information weapon whose security team has been essentially farmed out of the U.S. government. The head of security police at Facebook, Nathaniel Gleicher, promoted Nimmo's report, echoing his false claims. The Gray Zone spoke with more than two dozen living, breathing Sandinista activists whom this reporter knows and has met in person and who were purged in the social media crackdown. Many said this was the second or third time their accounts had been censored. Several had their Facebook and Twitter accounts removed during a violent U.S.-backed right-wing coup attempt in 2018. Multiple activists said they are afraid Washington will sponsor another coup attempt or destabilization operations following Nicaragua's November 7 elections. And because they were banned on social media, the Sandinista supporters will be unable to inform the outside world about what is actually happening in their country. Sandinista influencer Ligia Sevilla, who has more than 5,500 followers on her personal Instagram account, which was suspended along with her Facebook profile, proclaimed, quote, I am not a bot, I am not a troll, and my social media accounts were censored. Maybe Facebook doesn't allow us to be Sandinistas. After Sevilla shared this video to verify her authenticity, Twitter suspended her account as well, a sign of a coordinated censorship campaign targeting Sandinistas on social media. Sandinista activist Franklin Ruiz, whose personal Facebook page was suspended, published a video message as well. I want to tell you that we are human beings. We are people who on Facebook are defending our revolution, defending our country. We are not bots, as Facebook says, or programmed trolls. After Ruiz shared this video on Twitter, the platform purged him too. Haler Gaetan, another Sandinista activist censored by Facebook, published a video explaining, I'm a young communicator. I am not a troll, as Facebook says, or a bot. I'm a young communicator who shares information about the good progress in Nicaragua, he continued. We enjoy free health care, free education, and other programs that benefit the Nicaraguan people, and that we have been building throughout our history, and they have wanted to take that from us, but they will never be able to. After Gaetan posted this video on Twitter, it suspended his account as well. Darling Huete is a Nicaraguan journalist whose personal Facebook account was also censored. I'm here to tell you that Facebook censored my account, according to it, because my account is a troll account or fake account, something that is not true. My account has been active for more than seven years, she said in a video she posted on Twitter. 
This is clearly political censorship because I support the government of Nicaragua. So they've decided that my opinion or my way of thinking is not appropriate, according to the absurd policies of Facebook, Huete lamented. After Huete shared this video, Twitter deleted her account too. Huete told the Gray Zone this is the second time her Facebook and Twitter accounts were suspended. The first time was during the violent U.S.-backed right-wing coup attempt in Nicaragua. Daniela Sinafuegos, an activist with the pro-Sandinista Red de Jovens Comunicadores network of youth communicators, posted a video on Twitter saying, I wanted to tell you that no, we are not trolls. We are people who dedicate ourselves to communicate from the trenches to inform the Nicaraguan people and on the international stage. After Cienfuegos published this, Twitter deleted her account as well. The above are just a small sample of Nicaraguans who were falsely smeared as government-run trolls by Facebook and erased from social media. But it wasn't just individual Nicaraguans who were censored. Major Nicaraguan media outlets that provide a pro-Sandinista perspective were also removed. On the night of October 31, Facebook removed 140 pages in 24 groups, 100% of which were pro-Sandinista. Among those deleted were the official Sandinista newspaper, Barracada, which had more than 65,000 followers. Popular youth-run left-wing media outlet, Redvolution, which had more than 81,000 followers. The Red de Jovens Communicadores, or Young Communicators Network, which brings together journalists and media activists from the Sandinista Youth Social Movement, and which had more than 71,000 followers. And the individual profiles of dozens of Nicaraguan journalists, activists, and influencers. At the exact same time the Facebook, as the Facebook purge, its sister platform, Instagram, took down many of the same pages. Unlike other purged accounts, Nicaraguan Decenia is decidedly not a political organization. It is run by Camila Ortega, a daughter of the president. But Nicaragua Decenia intentionally goes out of its way to avoid politics, trying to bring together opposition supporters and Sandinistas in apolitical cultural events. Just a few days before the coordinated Facebook-Instagram purge, Twitter also removed the accounts of the most prominent pro-Sandinista journalists and influencers on the platform. Despite all of these efforts uh, suppressing the communication via social media from Nicaragua, from the, the Sandinista supporters on Nicaragua, the Nicaraguan elections uh, went off as usual, as expected, as planned on November 7. As expected via polling, uh, Daniel Ortega was re-elected easily in those elections. He did stand against six other, maybe five other candidates on that ballot. There were multiple choices for the Nicaraguan um, people to choose from on that ballot. And Daniel Ortega was supported and was re-elected as president. And as pre-planned, because it was released on the day of the Nicaraguan elections, here is the statement from Joe Biden. And to understand the bias in par as part of the plan of U.S. to continue to try to destabilize the Nicaraguan government. The title of this press release is called Statement by President Joseph R. Biden Jr. on Nicaragua's Sham 
elections. You don't even have to read anything else to know and understand and get the message that the U.S. government is trying to deliver. But here's what the statement from Joe Biden says. What Nicaraguan President Daniel Ortega and his wife, Vice President Rosario Murillo, orchestrated today was a pantomime election that was neither free nor fair and most certainly not democratic. The arbitrary imprisonment of nearly 40 opposition figures since May, including seven potential presidential candidates and the blocking of political parties from participation rigged the outcome well before Election Day. They shuttered independent media, locked up journalists and members of the private sector, and bullied civil society organizations into closing their doors. Long unpopular and now without a democratic mandate, the Ortega and Murillo family now rule Nicaragua as autocrats, no different from the Somoza family that Ortega and the Sandinistas fought for decades ago. The United States stands in support of the inalienable right to democratic self-determination of the Nicaraguan people and those of any other country in the hemisphere where the popular sovereignty is compromised by the erosion of democratic norms, stifling of civic space, or violations of fundamental rights. The Inter-American Democratic Charter obligates the hemisphere to stand up for the democratic rights of the Nicaraguan people. We call on the Ortega Murillo regime to take immediate steps to restore democracy in Nicaragua and to immediately and unconditionally release those unjustly imprisoned for speaking out against abuses and clamoring for the right of Nicaraguans to vote in free and fair elections. Until then, the United States, in close coordination with other members of the international community, will use all diplomatic and economic tools at our disposal to support the people of Nicaragua and hold accountable the Ortega Murillo government and those that facilitate its abuses. Lies. Lies, lies, just lies built to support the undermining of the democratically elected government of Nicaragua. Exactly what this is saying they should have. A democratic system is what they have. And because we don't like who the, the people elect, we go to extraordinary lengths to harm the people that elect the government we don't like. And we couch it in all kinds of different language and uh, claim incessantly that we are just trying to target the quote-unquote bad people, the quote-unquote corrupt people, but we end up applying sanctions that severely harm the people. Uh, like every single line of this is just uh, false. The arbitrary imprisonment of nearly 40 opposition figures since May it was not arbitrary. Anyone who was imprisoned was based on a violation of the law, including seven potential presidential candidates. This is the really, really interesting language here because everywhere, everywhere in the media, you go look up uh, presidential candidates, Daniel Ortega election in any of the corporate media. It says Daniel Ortega imprisoned presidential candidates, opposition presidential candidates. He did not. They were not presidential candidates. And even Biden's own press release says he imprisoned potential presidential candidates. Well, fuck. Anyone's a potential presidential candidate. And a certain people are more likely to potentially become a presidential candidate than others. But these were not presidential candidates, even by Biden's own press release. So just uh, understand 
when you hear that from everyone, and I hear that from people on the left, people on the left that are concerned about Ortega, and and I, I'm not going to claim there are no concerns. I'm not going to claim there's nothing to be concerned about. But, and some people may get angry or upset by this analogy, but I think focusing on anything that Daniel Ortega and his government has done that is corrupt or improper in relation to the elections there and having free and fair elections, I think that is very similar to focusing on the fact that George Floyd may have had or may have attempted to use a counterfeit $20 bill. The crime here is the U.S. causing such tremendous disruption of Nicaragua that the response of the Nicaraguan government to that, where it may go outside of the bounds of what might otherwise be ideal, is secondary. Number one, stop fucking with these other countries. Stop trying to destabilize them, then, only then, can you criticize their actions, um, especially when their actions are not extreme. Finally, two stories from Black Agenda Report. First one is by Ajamu Baraka. Class warfare and socialist resistance, Nicaragua, Cuba, Venezuela, as existential threats to the U.S. One of the extreme ironies of the latest attack by the settler colonial regime of the United States against the National Democratic Project of Nicaragua is that in Nicaragua, the second poorest nation in the Americas, universal health care and education are guaranteed to the population as a human right, while in the U.S., those kinds of basic human rights are distant dreams. The day after the so-called progressive bloc of legislators in the U.S. House of Representatives surrendered to President Joe Biden and the right-wing corporate wing of the party on the Build Back Better legislation that offered some minor and temporary relief for workers and the poor, many of those same, quote, progressives voted for the Renaissance Act. The Renaissance Act is a vicious piece of legislation meant to undermine the ability of the Nicaraguan government to protect the human rights of its people and to punish the people for having the temerity to support their government and their anti-colonial project. Why do Nicaragua, Cuba, Venezuela pose such an existential threat to the U.S.? Why are they able to unite all the wings of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party against them? It boils down to two factors. First, the power of their example in attempting to build independent, self-determining projects that center the material needs and interests of the people over those of capital. Second, the class warfare politics of the U.S. state. The reassertion of the racist Monroe Doctrine by former U.S. National Security Advisor John Bolton was not repudiated by the Biden administration because it is also the guiding framework for its policies. 
The reference to the Monroe Doctrine was nothing more than connecting that doctrine to its contemporary policy expression reflected in the doctrine of, quote, full-spectrum dominance that has been bipartisan U.S. foreign policy for 20 years. The thrust of this policy is that any nation that attempts to defy the U.S. and build an independent project that threatens U.S. hegemony in any region of the world will be destroyed. The fact that Nicaragua, Cuba, and Venezuela are not only attempting to build independent projects, but build socialism makes their example even more of a threat. But there is also a domestic ideological component to this as well. The very existence of these nations at this historical moment, a moment characterized by the deepening and irreversible contradictions and current crisis of the capitalist order, poses a potentially serious ideological threat. If these relatively poor nations can build public housing and eliminate homelessness, offer free education and universal health care, guarantee that no one will be allowed to go hungry, can build democratic structures with a protected right of popular participation. The question as to why these kind of human rights are unrealizable for the people of the U.S. is a destabilizing one that must be avoided at all costs. Nicaragua, Cuba, and Venezuela are attempting to build a socialism that is committed to a framework of social justice that we refer to as people-centered human rights, PCHRs. PCHRs are informed by the theoretical social practice of the African-American radical human rights tradition and have emerged as the flip side of the same coin from people-centered development. Unlike the liberal, individualist, state-centric, and legalistic conception of human rights, PCHRs are defined as, quote, those non-oppressive rights that reflect the highest commitment to universal human dignity and social justice that individuals and collectives define and secure for themselves through social struggle. This approach to human rights views human rights as an arena of struggle that, when grounded and informed by the needs and aspirations of the oppressed, becomes part of a unified comprehensive strategy for decolonization and radical social change. U.S. President Joe Biden declared that Nicaragua President Daniel Ortega was, quote, no different from the Somoza family that Ortega and the Sandinistas fought for decades ago. He went on to say that the United States, in close coordination with other members of the international community, will use all diplomatic and economic tools at our disposal to support the people of Nicaragua and hold accountable the Ortega Murillo government and those that facilitate its abuses. Biden forgot to mention that the U.S. placed Somoza in power and supported him until he was overthrown by the Sandinistas in 1979. The idea that the U.S. is concerned about democracy or human rights anywhere in the world is an insult to all thinking persons. I will not list once again the litany of crimes that support that assertion, except for two. The Biden administration and their ideological lackeys in the media, and even among some elements of what is referred to as a left, questioned the 65% turnout for the elections in Nicaragua. But when it was objectively verified that less than one quarter of the voting population turned out for the phony election of the Clinton-imposed president of Haiti, Martel Martelli, or equally phony election of Jovenel Moyes with less than 20% turnout, where were the questions from the New York Times, Washington Post, and all the other propaganda outlets posing as news operations? What was Joe Biden's position in the administration when his boss, President Obama, gave the green light to overthrow the democratically elected government of Manuel Zelaya in Honduras? Did he oppose it? 
Criminality is a core characteristic of all settler colonial states because they are born out of systematic, terroristic, and genocidal violence against indigenous populations, and even more so when, as the case of the U.S., they become global empires. Democracy and human rights are no more than ideological props to obscure the real interests and intentions of the rulers and to build domestic support for whatever criminal activity the state has embarked on. Subversion in Haiti, sanctions and attacks on Nicaragua, Cuba, and Venezuela, and the ongoing wars launched from over 800 U.S. military bases worldwide, continues and will continue as long as the U.S. public is confused, disorganized, and diverted from understanding that the interests of the capitalist oligarchy are not their interests. Slowly, that shift in consciousness is happening in the U.S., the economic crisis of the last year and a half, coming on the heels of the devastating crisis of 2008-2009, has created a legitimation crisis and a new understanding of the real interests of the rulers that will not be reversed. The precarity of workers and the poor are forcing them to eliminate any and all illusions about their government and the economic system. Debate around the Build Back Better legislation and the elimination of provisions that could have had material impact on the lives of workers, in particular women of color workers, exposed the legislation as a cynical public relations stunt. Compared to the attempts by states attempting to move towards socialism, the provisions in the bill, even before it was stripped of most of its progressive provisions, still did not offer a real minimum floor for the protection of the fundamental human rights to social security, the right to an adequate income, housing, education, the right to participate in governance with the right to vote as a minimum, and health care, to name a few of the rights denied the population in the U.S., and even more so for its radicalized and colonized captives. That is why the idea of socialism and the possibility of an alternative to the barbarity of capitalism has been attacked. The U.S. intends to turn Nicaragua into Haiti, Cuba into Honduras, and Venezuela, which is key for liberation movements in the region, into Libya. The U.S. and the European latte left is helping. But as Brother Netfa Freeman stated, black anti-colonial revolutionaries will stand with Nicaragua and all the struggling peoples of the planet against the number one threat to international peace and human rights, the United States of America. In that position, there is no compromise and no retreat. And finally, also from Black Agenda Report, this piece is written by Margaret Kimberly. The United States has continuously carried out acts of aggression against Nicaragua and its people for more than 150 years. Joseph Biden's effort to undermine that country's sovereignty is part of a long history of invasions, coups, and support for U.S. puppets. The Biden administration declared the recent election fraudulent before it had even taken place. The corporate media repeated lies about an authoritarian dictatorship that came straight from the State Department's script. The United States Congress voted overwhelmingly to pass the Renisser Act, a regime change plot featuring the imposition of sanctions meant to create misery for Nicaraguans. Sanctions are war by other means, the modern-day version of sending the Marines. The U.S. has done just that, occupying the country 
from 1912 to 1933. But that was not the first time that U.S. forces were sent to undermine Nicaraguan governments. In 1856, an American named William Walker invaded the country with a mercenary army and declared himself president. Walker was supported by the American slaveocracy and sought to create a new slaveholding nation in the region. During his year-long reign, he revoked Nicaragua's abolition law and he was recognized as president by the Franklin Pierce administration. The next bout of American aggressions began with an occupation by the U.S. Marines in 1912, which lasted until 1933. Augusto Cesar Sandino fought a guerrilla war against the occupation before being executed under orders of Anastasio Somoza. The Somoza family ruled until 1979 and always with the backing of the United States. The Sandinista movement, which took its name after Sandino, emerged triumphant in 1980 against Somoza's regime and quickly came under attack from the Ronald Reagan administration. The opposition groups, known as Contras, were given millions of dollars and were assisted in fundraising through the sale of cocaine in the United States. The crack cocaine epidemic began as part of a U.S. imperialist plan. The war waged in Nicaragua was also carried out against communities of color in this country, too. In addition to that, you may remember the Iran-Contra scandal that the Contras were also clandestinely funded, illegally funded, by clandestinely selling uh, missiles and weapons materials to Iran. President Daniel Ortega was re-elected on November 7, 2021, and Washington once again declared war on his nation. The Renaissance Act, passed by a vote of 387 to 35 in the House of Representatives, a huge majority indicative of bipartisan support for war by other means. The Biden administration acted quickly in denouncing the election before it took place and repeated their claims of a, quote, pantomime election on the day that Nicaraguans went to the polls. They followed up by orchestrating an organization of American states OAS rejection of the Nicaraguan people's electoral decision. And if you remember the very recent history of Bolivia, it was the OAS that cast doubt on the Bolivia election results, leading to the coup in Bolivia that ousted elected President Evo Morales. As a member of the Black Alliance for Peace, BAP delegation in Nicaragua, this columnist witnessed the determination of Nicaraguans to choose their own government without interference. More than 200 representatives from 27 nations were designated as acompañantes, companions, to the electoral process. The BAP delegation traveled to the Caribbean coast city of Bluefields, where African-descended Garifunas and Creoles reside with mestizos in the Mosquito, Rama, and Olwas indigenous communities. Voters from all these groups came out to well-managed polling places where all presidential candidates were listed on the ballot. The process was transparent and orderly, unlike the voting process in the United States, where eligible voters can be stricken from the ballot or be forced to wait for hours to cast their votes. Despite what the White House and the corporate media claimed, Opposition parties were able to campaign freely. Their signage and literature were quite visible, and no one can truthfully say that the public were unaware of the variety of electoral choices. 
the Front Sandinista para Liberación Nacional, FSLN, emerged triumphant because they endeavor to meet popular needs. The Afro-descended citizens of the Caribbean coast were recognized as a group with distinct needs that were enshrined in the FSLN constitution. That region was excluded and quite literally isolated from the rest of the country without access to transportation and lacking basic infrastructure such as electricity and clean water. BEP delegates heard the consistent message that support for the FSLN is a result of concrete improvements in people's lives. Despite the determination of the U.S. to undermine them, the FSLN now provide free health care and increased educational opportunities throughout the nation. The 19th century Monroe Doctrine is alive and well in the 21st century. Whoever is in power in Washington considers other nations in this hemisphere to be its, quote, backyard. Nicaragua's population of 6.5 million is smaller than that of New York City. Yet those few people are not allowed to exercise their rights of self-determination without raising Uncle Sam's ire. Nicaraguans are not the first to feel imperialist vengeance. Tiny Grenada was undermined and invaded when it sought to determine democracy for itself. Venezuela is also under the sanctions hammer and Haiti is allowed to do nothing that Washington doesn't approve. The corporate media may be under the dictates of the state, but the people have no reason to follow suit. The presence of companion delegations in Nicaragua was an important step in revealing how the hybrid warfare playbook is put into practice. Nicaraguans are well aware of their history. The lies are intended for a different audience. The United States seeks to fool its own people and thereby gain support for whatever form of aggression that it may choose. The plan is a consistent one, which starts with the media amplifying narratives that will gain support for interference. Creating falsehoods of human rights abuses is a reliable ruse to keep Americans complacent about their government's activities. The collusion between government and media explains why, quote, trolls are active on social media, attacking anyone who questions what Washington says. Facebook continued its work on behalf of the state by removing accounts expressing any support for Nicaraguan sovereignty. The marriage of big tech companies and the Democratic Party showed itself once again, proving that claims of freedom and democracy in U.S. politics are indeed an elaborate pantomime. It may seem odd that a small nation can be the focus of so much determination to destroy its independence. But it isn't hard to understand that Nicaragua threatens the U.S. should it be allowed to determine its own fate. The people who think they live in a democracy do not. They do not have access to free health care and are told they cannot expect to ever have it. Nicaragua is an example of what people in the U.S. could have if they were as free as they like to believe. The drive to subjugate is, an old, is as old as the Republic, with the United States acting as hegemon around the world, creating conflict and great suffering. The evil commitment to destroy Nicaraguan democracy is not unexpected, but it must be vociferously opposed. Doing so is a litmus test which determines who is really on the left and who is not. There can be no compromise on the anti-imperialist stance. The human rights of people around the world must be respected, and any United States government effort to violate them must be met with equivalent resolve. 
bravo to the black agenda report in the gray zone for getting beyond the headlines getting beyond the stories in the corporate media and consistently seeing things for what they are consistently opposing empire and that'll wrap up this episode of you can't be neutral remember you can follow on twitter at ycb neutral you can check out all the back episodes at you can't be neutral.com you can also listen to this and all my podcasts playing 24 7 at movingtrainradio.com now a moment of zen thanks for listening well let's go to the third question what is the war against terrorism and side question what's terrorism the war against terrorism has been described in high places as a struggle against uh, a plague, uh, a cancer, uh, which is uh, spread by barbarians, by depraved opponents of civilization itself. That's a feeling that I share. The words I'm quoting, however, happen to be from 20 years ago. That's President Reagan and his Secretary of State. The Reagan administration came into office uh, 20 years ago, declaring that the war against international terrorism would be the core of our foreign policy, describing it in terms of the kind I just mentioned, and others. It was the core of our foreign policy. The Reagan administration responded to this plague uh, spread by depraved opponents of civilization itself by creating a, an extraordinary international terrorist network, totally unprecedented in scale, uh, which carried out massive atrocities all over the world, partly nearby, but not only there. I won't run through the record. I, you're all educated people, so I'm sure you learned about it in high school. Uh, but uh, I'll just mention uh, one case uh, which is totally uncontroversial, so we don't have to argue about it. Uh, by no means the most extreme, but uncontroversial. It's uncontroversial because of the judgments of the highest international authorities the International Court of Justice, the World Court, and the uh, UN Security Council. So this one is uncontroversial, at least among people who have some minimal concern for international law, human rights, uh, justice, and other things like that. And uh, now I'll leave you an exercise. You can estimate the size of that category by simply asking how often this uncontroversial case uh, has been mentioned in the commentary of the last month, and it's a particularly relevant one, not only because it's uncontroversial, but because it does offer a precedent as to how a law-abiding state did respond, in fact, to a case of international terrorism, which is uncontroversial, and uh, was even more extreme than uh, uh, the events of September 11th. I'm talking about the Reagan US war against Nicaragua, which left tens of thousands of people dead, the country ruined, perhaps beyond recovery, Nicaragua d did respond. They didn't respond by setting off bombs in Washington. Uh, they responded by taking it to the world court, presenting a case. They had no problem putting together evidence. The world court accepted their case, ruled in their favor, condemned what it called the unlawful use of force, which is another word for international terrorism by the United States, 
ordered the United States to uh, terminate the crime and to pay massive reparations. The United States, of course, dismissed the court judgment with total contempt and announced that it would not accept the jurisdiction of the court henceforth. Nicaragua then uh, went to the UN Security Council, which uh, considered a resolution calling on all states to observe international law. Uh, no one was mentioned, but everyone understood. Uh, the United States vetoed the resolution. It now stands as the only state on record which has both been condemned by the World Court for international terrorism and has vetoed uh, the Security Council resolution calling on states to uh, observe international law. Nicaragua then went to the General Assembly where there's technically no veto, but a negative U.S. vote amounts to a veto. It passed a similar resolution uh, with uh, only the United States, Israel, and El Salvador opposed. The following year, again, this time, the United States could only rally Israel to the cause, so two votes opposed to observing international law. At that point, Nicaragua couldn't do anything lawful. It tried all the measures. They don't work in a wor world that is ruled by force. This case, I must say, is uncontroversial, but it's by no means the, the most extreme. We gain a lot of insight into our own culture and society and what's happening now uh, by asking how much we know about all this and how much we talk about it, how much you learn about it in school, you know, how much it's all over the front pages. And this is only the beginning. The United States responded to the World Court and the Security Council by immediately escalating the war very quickly. That was a bipartisan decision, incidentally. The terms of the war were also changed. Uh, for the first time, there were official orders given uh, to the terrorist army uh, to attack what are called soft targets, uh, meaning undefended civilian targets, and to keep away from the Nicaraguan army. They were able to do that because the United States had total control of the air over Nicaragua. The mercenary army was supplied with advanced communication equipment. It wasn't a guerrilla army in the normal sense and could get instructions about the disposition of Nicaraguan army forces so they could attack uh, agricultural collectives, um, health clinics, and so on, soft targets uh, with impunity. Those were the official orders. Now, what was the reaction? It was known, and there was a reaction to it. It, the policy was regarded as sensible by left liberal opinion. So uh, Michael Kinsley, who represents the left in mainstream discussion, wrote an article in which he said that uh, we shouldn't be too quick to criticize this policy as Human Rights Watch had just done. He said a sensible policy must meet the test of cost-benefit analysis. That is, and I'm quoting now, an analysis of the amount of blood and misery that will be poured in and the likelihood that democracy will emerge at the other end. Uh, democracy, as the U.S. Uh, understands the term, which is graphically illustrated in the surrounding countries. Notice that it's axiomatic that the United States, U.S. elites have the right to conduct the analysis and to pursue the project if it passes their tests. And it did pass their tests. It worked. When Nicaragua finally succumbed to a superpower assault, commentators openly and cheerfully lauded the success of the methods that were adopted and described them accurately. So I'll quote 
Time magazine, just to pick one, uh, lauded the success of the methods adopted, direct the economy, and prosecute a long and deadly proxy war until the exhausted natives overthrow the unwanted government themselves with a cost to us that is minimal and uh, leaving the victims with wrecked bridges, sabotaged power stations, and ruined farms, and thus providing the US candidate with a winning issue, ending the impoverishment of the people of Nicaragua. The New York Times uh, had a headline saying, Americans united in joy uh, at this outcome. 